The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Hello, welcome. Today, we're talking about the Lockahatchee National Wildlife Refuge. It's in Palm Beach County, Florida. And I think of it as wetlands, grasslands, and tree islands of gators and snail kites. Um, with me are Rolf Olson, who's the refugee manager of the Arthur R. Marshall Lockahatchee National Wildlife Refuge. Hello, Rolf. Uh, good afternoon. How are you doing? Very good. I'm glad you're with us on the phone here. And, the, the refuge is permitting you to step away from all the management to talk with us. Uh, and also with us is Mark Museus, and he's the former refugee manager of the Arthur R. Marshall Lockahatchee National Wildlife Refuge. Hello, Mark. Hello, Rob. Glad to be on the call. Oh, great. It's good to have a, such an experienced voice on the phone with us. Uh, and then finally, Eleanor Williams is with us, and Eleanor is the president of the Friends of the Archer, Arthur R. Marshall Lockahatchee National Wildlife Refuge. Hello, Eleanor. Hi, Rob. Thanks for having us. Hey, we're all together here. So I put this program together because, and these people were so good to spend time with me, uh, because the Ocean River Institute is coordinating with a good number of conservation organizations that are based in Florida where I'm standing here in Harvard Square up in Cambridge, Massachusetts. But uh, we're all working together to save the Lockahatchee National Wildlife Refuge. And the refuge is suffering from three tangled-up issues right now. Uh, one is that there's these invasive plants that have become too pervasive. Two is that there's a federal funding is insufficient to deal with said plants. And three, the South Florida Water Management District is threatening to close the refuge if the feds don't step up and help out more with controlling these invasive plants. So this program, we're going to be learning all about those issues, uh, those, the situation of the plants and how to manage the park and, and what's so special about the refuge, how to manage the refuge. Um, but if you want more information on how you can assist with the Ocean River efforts, I invite you to visit our website at www.oceanriver.com. Dot O-R-G. Ocean River is one word, singular. Uh, so today's episode of Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, we're going to be in three parts, but everyone's on the line so they can all chip in at any time. But first, Superintendent Olson will talk about the refuge. I'm sorry. I'm used to working with national parks in, uh, here in the Boston Harbor Islands, and uh, so I'm always referring to the guy in charge as superintendent. 
But this is a national refuge, and so uh, public access is not the first priority. The first priority is protecting and conserving uh, the wildlife and the wild and the habitats. And so we have a refuge manager, uh, not a superintendent. So refuge manager Olson will talk about the refuge and the size and the habitats and the animals and plants that make this place a real national treasure. Um, he's going to explain two other challenges that are demanding attention by managers in addition to the invasive plants. And then second, and then former, uh, the former uh, refugee manager, refugee, <laughs> no, the other mistake. Okay, the former refuge manager, uh, uh, Mark Musasis, um, he's going to go into the weeds about tackling those two invasive plants over the decades. And finally, Eleanor Williams will talk about her, what, kept, what keeps her visiting the Lockahatchee and keeps her engaged in that refuge, and also the work of the friends of the Lockahatchee Wildlife Refuge. Whew. So, Ralph, help me out here. I've tripped a couple times already. Um, <laughs> but tell us about what's so special about the Lockahatchee National Wildlife Refuge. All right. Well, thank you. Let me just start with talking about the Everglades in general. The Everglades um, prehistorically ranged all the way from south of Orlando, Florida, through the Kissimmee River, down into Lake Okeechobee. Lake Okeechobee used to be about two to three times the size that it is today. It would come down and it would sheet flow through what's now um, Arthur R. Marshall Loxahatchee Refuge, down into Everglades National Park, and most of it would go out into Florida Bay. Some of that would go down and come out into Biscayne Bay, but most of it would go down to Florida Bay. In 1928, there was a major hurricane that killed uh, over 2,600 people in the area. And in 1947 and 1948, there were back-to-back hurricanes that killed a large number, just thousands of people in this area. The state of Florida went to the federal government, and they asked the federal government to do flood control. And the federal government agreed to do flood control, and what they did was they put a levee, the Herbert Hoover levee, all the way around Lake Okeechobee. That shrank it about in half to a third of the size that it used to be. And then they created three impounded areas. They divided the Everglades into Water Conservation Area 1, 2, and 3, and then Area 3 drains into Everglades National Park. So as part of that agreement... The federal government said they would do it, but for 50 years, Water Conservation Area 1 would have to be managed as a national wildlife refuge, which um, emphasizes wildlife management, um, so plants and animals to get priority in that area. So in 1951, the Arthur R. Marshall Loxahatchee National Wildlife Refuge was established. Um, from now on, I'll just refer to it as refuge to save a little bit of time. Um, the refuge is 143,924 acres in size. Of that, 141,000 are owned by the state and managed by the federal government. Only 2,550 are actually owned by the federal government. That's a 220 square miles, and for those listeners that are still on the metric system, 58,000 hectares. The refuge is divided with five primary habitats, um, cypress swamp, and that cypress swamp used to go all the way from north of Lake Okeechobee down to Miami, Florida as one solid strand. 
there's little chunks of it left along that strand, but the largest remaining chunk is right here at Loxahatchee National Wildlife Refuge. It's uh, a little bit of private land, refuge land, county land, and South Florida Water Management District land. We have a habitat of sawgrass plains. Um, sawgrass is a sedge. has a very sharp edge, sharper than any knife you've probably ever uh, come across. Um, so we have sawgrass. We have wet prairies, and these wet prairies are basically water with grass growing up through it. Um, so if you looked at it, it looks just like a prairie, only it doesn't have dirt. It has water. And we have sloughs, which is open water areas where all the vegetation grows below the water, and then we have tree islands. Um, one interesting thing about the refuge is the refuge has the deepest peat layer of anywhere in the Everglades. So when you get to this north end of the Everglades, we are over 8 to 15 feet of peat. When you get down to the south end of the Everglades by Everglades National Park, you literally have two or three centimeters of peat or it's exposed. The refuge has over 45,700 tree islands, and we basically have two types of tree islands. One of those tree islands is uh, the peat decomposes and ferments, creates gas, and big, um, big mats of peat bubble up to the top. And then the trees start growing on that. And then the second type of tree island is what we call strand tree islands. That's where the limestone pushes the peat up a little bit higher, high enough to uh, start an island. These islands can be small. They can be um, maybe less than a quarter acre or a tenth of an acre, up to um, maybe a mile or two miles long and a quarter mile wide. If you drop down to the next conservation area, they have about 40 tree islands, and then conservation area 3 has about 557 tree islands. So we have way more tree islands than most of the, um, most of the Everglades does. The northern end of the refuge, especially this time of year, is dries out first um, in the Everglades, so it's really critical for wading birds, that's egrets, herrings, wood storks, ibises, um, all feed on the northern end of the refuge, store up a lot of energy, and then they go out through the rest of the Everglades and uh, nest here in about a month. So right now, if you were on the northern end of the refuge, you would see huge flocks of, uh, wait of those wading birds I mentioned. The refuge has the highest density of alligators of anywhere in the Everglades. But we have the the um, smallest size, or um, they're they're not the they're not the largest alligators in the in the system. We also have the world's um, highest density of desmids. Now that's a little bit geeky, but um, that's a unique class of green algae. So if you come here to Loxahatchee Refuge, and that's a good algae, you hear a lot of in Florida about bad algae, but this is a good algae. The highest density of these algae, this green algae, in the entire world. Um, we're also critical habitat for the endangered Everglades snail kite. When I first came here in 2002, there were less than 500 snail kites. The snail kites are up to about 13 to 1500, so they're still critically endangered, but they kind of are on the recovery track. Last year, the refuge had uh, eight nests. Five of those were successful. Um, ten young were born, and out of those ten, eight were fledged. 
the snail kite only eats apple snails. Its beak and its claws are specifically designed to only eat apple snails, which is a snail that lives on the refuge. It's highly susceptible to predation when it's young, and one of the things that love to eat young um, young snail kites are great horned owls and other owls. So that's why um, we had so many nests. We had young, but only eight of them actually fledged. We're also really proud of... Um, our one pine tree that we have on the refuge. We have one giant, probably 60-foot-tall uh, pine tree that has a bald eagle nest in it that produces young every year. The refuge itself has a number of threats. The three most predominant threats are water quantity and water quality and then exotic plants. Um, Florida is really a boom or bust system for water. We usually have too much water or not enough water in the system. Um, Biscayne, uh, Florida Bay is suffering from not getting enough water moving through the Everglades and they're having high salinity and seagrass die-off issues. A couple of years ago, maybe five or six years ago, we had a series of back-to-back droughts and uh, one whole town in the area, so millions of people were within two weeks of running out of potable drinking water. And then the opposite, and that can actually change, um, ironically, like overnight. We've had systems, two of them since I've been here, where we've had 21 inches of rain in a 24-hour period. So you go literally from a drought, like I was just talking about, to a flood um, literally in a day. Um, yeah. So water quantity is a problem. Water quality is a problem for the Everglades. Um, the Everglades is a low-nutrient system. It really should be less than 10 parts per billion of phosphorus. And uh, water that's coming into the Everglades historically was around 100 to 200 parts per billion phosphorus. Um, just to give you a little pers- perspective of that, if you went out and got your best bottle of drinking water at the store, that would have about 80 parts per billion in it. So right now, um, the South Florida Water Management District, the Army Corps of Engineers, have created a number of giant filter marshes. And those um, filter marshes take this water that's about 120 right now parts per billion that goes through uh, filtering, comes out into the refuge at about 20 parts per billion, which is still about 10 parts per billion away from from where it should be. The other threat that we're dealing with um, is exotic plants and animals. So if you remember when I was telling you earlier about the refuge being mostly owned by the state of Florida, South Florida Water Management District, we had a 50-year uh, agreement to be here, and that expired in 2001, and Mark uh, Museus was instrumental in getting us another 90-year license agreement, but that had performance measures, and 13 performance measures. Of the 13, we are making all but half of one, and that's to control two exotic plants, Ligodium, which is also called Old World Climbing Fern in Maluka. Um Ligodium was imported for the ornamental industry in the 50s and um, looks very pretty on trellises, but also quickly escaped um, the ornamental, you know, landscaping areas, the residential areas, and is a problem throughout Florida. Maluka was brought here in the early 1920s from Australia, and Maluka 
sucks up a large amount of water. The idea was it could be seeded in the Everglades. It would suck up enough water to have farming out in the Everglades. So both plants are a problem for us. Our latest uh, mapping of uh, the refuge, about 72% or 102,000 acres were had Ligodium at some level on it. In about Yikes. 60... Sorry, go ahead. Yikes, that's a lot. Oh, yeah, it is, yeah. And about 66% of the refuge had uh, Malaluca. That's about 93,000 acres. Um, we've been working extensively really hard to get rid of that. It's hard, brutal work. Um, right now... The best way to do it is by chemical treatments. Um, we don't really like chemicals, but it's really the only thing that's effective in controlling both those plants. Um, and we spend a lot of time and money out um, doing that. Some of the other things that we're working on are, um, or, or things that are threatening are exotic plant animals. I'm sorry, animals. We have pythons now on the refuge. They're well-established. Everglades National Park and moving north, they've made it to the refuge. Um, so we've caught a couple of pythons on the refuge. We've done what they call um, environmental DNA, which uh, scientists can actually, and that was sponsored by a U.S. Geological Survey. Scientists actually go out on the refuge, take a water sample, and within a certain holding period, they can tell if a python swam through that sample of water. We tested positive with high statistical probability for pythons, and we found pythons. Some of the other interesting uh, exotic animals that are threatening the refuge are Nile monitor lizards. These are similar to Komodo dragons um, that are smaller in size. They're only like five to six feet in length, and there's a wild population of those right next to the refuge. Um, thank God they haven't made it to the refuge, but it's only a matter of time before they get on the refuge. We're working extensively with um, the South Florida Water Management District, the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission, University of Florida, USGS, to try to figure out ways to control these um, animals. We also have snakehead fish in several insect species that are um, impacting, exotic insect species that are impacting the refuge. Um, I think I'll talk about it a little bit later, but the real hope is to find biological controls that'll help control these plants, and then we would have to be less reliant on chemicals. And then hopefully we could get the biocontrols actually established on the refuge and in all of Florida so that they would take care of these exotic plants um, at a much reduced cost. So the U.S. Department of Agriculture is actually traveling to Southeast Asia, Australia. They find insects that, um, that are prey on these plants, bring them back to a quarantine lab in Davie, Florida. They study them to make sure that they don't eat anything but the target species. And then if they, uh, it takes about two years, after about two years, if they're proven to not eat anything but the, the targeted plants, they'll let those go on the refuge or in, in throughout the, um, the area. Um, That's great, Ralph. I need to stop you there because it's, I need to take a break. Okay. And um, we're going to come back and uh, talk more about, uh, with Mark, about how to, um, how to, how to, really manage these, these invasive plants, and then we'll come back to you, Ralph, about more about these insects. That The insects only have a chance if you can get ahead of removing a lot of the plants first, and so that's a huge challenge 
that we'll talk some more about when we come right back after this break. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. On a Cape Cod shore, 16 striped bass fish and a horseshoe crab were found dead, killed by a harmful algal bloom. The town blamed excessive lawn fertilizer for polluting the water. They restricted lawn fertilizing to once a year. The state overruled, mandating five times a year. Though the striped bass died on a Falmouth shore, fertilizer pollution is a national problem, clogging our waterways. If you believe in our rights to clean water and beaches, if you want to stop the killing of fish by excessive fertilizer, please join with us. Make a donation for responsible stewardship. Acting together, we can have clean beaches and more fish. Please visit www.donateforoceans.org. That is www.donate4oceans.org. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi. We're talking about the Lockahatchee National Wildlife Refuge, and we've been talking with Ralph Olson, who's the refuge manager. And, and Ralph, Ralph, you have a wonderful webpage that's, uh, I love the way it's organized with identifying the habitats and, and then, you know, the wildlife and stuff. How can people uh, learn more about the Lockahatchee? Yeah, so the easiest way is just to type in Loxahatchee National Wildlife Refuge and do a search. It's L-O-X-A-H-A-T-C-H-E-E. Or you could go to www.f. 
www.gov um, backslash refuge backslash ARM underscore L-O-X-A-H-A-T-C-H-E-E. Well, that makes sense. Yeah, I highly recommend that people visit the site because it's, it's a wonderful resource for, because um, there's so much, so many animals and things that uh, the refugee manager, the refuge manager didn't have a chance to talk about. But uh, we're going to drill down now and with uh, Mark Moseas about, um, well, he's been, you've been involved, Mark, for quite a while. So why don't, you, why don't we start with um, when and how did you first become involved with the Lockahatchee? <clears throat> well, thanks, Rob. Um, I actually, my first uh, introduction, to, if you will, to Loxahatchee Refuge was in 1974. I was a college student. Um, I actually, I grew up in New Jersey, and one of my favorite places our family enjoyed camping was in Cape Cod. And about every other year, we camped, family camped up in Cape Cod, and I can remember one evening we went to an interpretive um, program at the Cape Cod National Seashore, and I was trying to consider uh, careers. Uh, I was a freshman at the time of college and um, talked to a, a park ranger, and there also happened to be a, a fellow from the BLM that was there on vacation. So I was asking them about careers and conservation with, with the government, and um, they pointed me to the Civil Service Commission, as it was called at that time, and so I learned about what they what was called the student trainee program, and they used to have um, programs both in the fisheries um, area and in wildlife, and I, I uh, had the qualifications to, to be a wildlife manager, refuge manager, and um, I waited, and at the end of my junior year, right around May of 74, I was um, sent a letter asking if I'd like to spend the summer working at Loxahatchee, so um, I jumped at the chance. It was an incredible experience. Um, the neat thing about the program was having a favorable experience and having all the educational requirements for the position that I was pretty much guaranteed a job when I graduated. So I enjoyed my senior year over many of my roommates and, um, and waited and then was assigned my first refuge full-time after, um, after I graduated in 75. I worked on uh, five National Wildlife Refuges in the southeast, all quite different in their habitat types and their management focus, and uh, wound up coming back full circle in 98 and uh, to be the refuge manager at now the Arthur R. Marshall Loxahatchee National Wildlife Refuge. And also we have another refuge about 50 miles north at Hobe Sound, Hobe Sound National Wildlife Refuge. So... Um, had a chance to over a 25-year period seeing it, seeing it twice and working there. Wow! And and then I understand that. Um, and and where are you calling us from now? So I live um, I live outside of Atlanta in a small community known as Buford, Georgia. Um, I finished out my career as the deputy regional director for the Fish and Wildlife Service for the Southeast Region. Um, which is the regional office is located in Atlanta. Um, and so I retired at the end of 2012 and took a break for a while and um, slowly was offered some different positions, some consulting work, and um, 
And at the end of 2014, I was asked to um, to serve as the Southeastern Regional Rep for the National Wildlife Refuge Association. And I did that up until about uh, a month ago when I was asked to uh, assume a, a more expanded role. So I currently and now I'm the Chief Operating Officer for the National Wildlife Refuge Association, but I continue to live here in Georgia. And so this is like the super friends group for the refuge, right? That's a, that's a great way to put it. The Refuge Association is mission is, is basically we're focused on conserving America's wildlife heritage, but we do that with our primary focus being to protect, help protect, and, and support the National Wildlife Refuge System. We used to joke when I was a, um, a young manager that the National Wildlife Refuge System was America's best-kept secret. Um, and so um, probably 40, 42 years ago, <clears throat> a bunch of retired Fish and Wildlife Service employees uh, banded together and formed the National Wildlife Refuge Association to try to do greater advocacy and awareness to Congress on the, the value of National Wildlife Refuges across the the nation, and um, that organization has grown over the years, but our primary focus is to protect and enhance the National Wildlife Refuge System. And you have a website people can visit? Yeah, you can go to um, refugeassociation.org, and you should be able to find information about our organization. That's really great. I've been very active with the National Parks Conservation Association. Yeah, excellent, excellent uh, organization. The NPS yep. side. Yeah. Yep. Um, so, but, we're, you know, you know, the refuge system and the Park Service are sister uh, conservation agencies located in the Department of Interior. The Park Service is its own agency, if you will, that yes. the refuge system is within the Fish and Wildlife Service, but they're sister bureaus, if you will, uh, incorporated under the Department of Interior. Wow. So, um, so tell me about you know how do how do you handle this uh, these climbing ferns that are taking over? Um, what was the percentage? Like seventy percent of the uh, of the refuge? I think Ralph said seventy two percent. So, um, it, it's obviously a huge problem. Um, invasive plants are there. I mean, I have invasive plants in my yard sometimes when I get crabgrass or dandelions, but but what we're focusing here are on invasive exotic species that, uh, as Ralph said, the Ligodium, the old world climbing fern, came in as an ornamental, thinking that it would be a beautiful little delicate vine. It's a fern, basically, that uh, people enjoyed having, you know, grow in the back of their yard um, or in their gardens. But uh, what makes, what makes uh, exotic plants or even exotic fish or exotic uh, reptiles is they have unique features that allow them to outcompete uh, native vegetation or native wildlife. So the, the Ligodium, um, basically, it reproduces by spores. So it can, it can generate thousands and thousands of spores off of each delicate fern-like vine. And so they're picked up by the, uh, the, the winds. We have coastal breezes that blow Offshore come in and they blow from east to west and they were throwing those, sending those spores out into the refuge. 
And these spores, like odium, has two things that they really need to be able to to uh, to grow and thrive, and that's a kind of a moist soil to be able to to germinate, and then something because it's divine has to grow on something. And so mm. these forty-seven thousand tree islands that, uh, or forty-five thousand whatever tree islands that that Rolf mentioned, became prime habitat for these for this for this vine to grow. So it it germinated in that wet peat soil, started climbing up on the native vegetation, and then can literally cover the entire um, crown of that tree canopy. And the problem with this being an invasive is that it not only gets so thick that it can literally just completely um, crowd out, it just completely destroys that crown, um, and then it blocks all the sunlight from the trees growing underneath it. So um, it just is a huge problem in, in what it does in, in out-competing. So it grows on host vegetation, and then it turns around and and basically indirectly kills it because of it's blocking all the sunlight or the weight of it just completely um, causes the trees to collapse. Terrible stuff. So how do you combat it? Well, as Rolf mentioned, it is, it's not an easy process. So uh, the best known, uh, so we have lots of scientists and um pest plant managers in the, in South Florida and across the country that focus just on trying to combat these kind of invasive plants, and they try to use every tool in the, in the tool basket. So the, the easiest, uh, not the easiest, the, the most effective way right now is going in and you, have, you do it by hand. You have a crew that goes out, they cut that vine a couple feet off the, the ground. That's obviously going to kill everything that grows above it. And then they have to spray the base of that of that uh, old world climbing fern plant. Um, when it's as thick as it is, it's a huge, huge problem. But um, what complicates things in the refuge is that, as Rolf mentioned, it's it's a wetland habitat. It's Everglades, and so where Ligodium, this old world climbing fern, is growing lots of places in South Florida. When I lived down there, you could travel up the turnpike or the interstate and see it on the in the in the area between the median between the north and south out lanes, I uh, used to see it in some wetlands driving out to Hope Sound Refuge in Jupiter. Um, the uh, but in some of those cases, you could drive up to that, uh, step out and and go over there and and treat that plant by hand, you know, cutting it and spraying it. But what what has to happen in the refuge is that you have to have crews that go out by airboat. So you have to have an experienced airboat operator that can take a crew of four to five people and then take them out into the refuge to work on, on controlling these, these vines. And it takes a special person that's willing to do that. We're talking about somebody that's willing to, to wade most of the day in up to their, you know, almost to their waist in water. Um, uh, we have alligators and snakes and plenty of mosquitoes that, that they're having to be on the lookout for. And then they're going to have to be working in that hot sun all day long trying to cut and spray this vine. So it's a huge, laborious effort to do that, and it takes time and effort. Um, when the refuge has dry periods, then you may not even be able to get out there with the airboat to access that ligodium. And yet the ligodium continues to grow and continues to spread spores. Um, the other 
tool that they're using is they can use aerial spraying. Um, the, the challenge that we had and when I was down there was where some of the other plants, we mentioned Melaleuca as a problem invasive species, it can grow almost like a forest-like stand of its own. And you can go in there and spray that. Nothing grows below. Uh, and when that Melaleuca stand is so thick, it too crowds out all other um, plants below it. But if you were to go through and, and treat it by helicopter with an aerial spraying, you're focusing just on that Melaleuca tree. Uh, and there's very little uh, non-target damage, if you will. The well, challenge cool. for Rolf and his crew is when they're out there trying to spray Ligodium, it's, it's growing on native vegetation. So how do we effectively kill the plant that's the threat without trying to kill the host vegetation that's there? So where they're tackling it the most is where the Ligodium has done so much damage already to that tree island that it's probably not going to make a difference by by having uh, too strong a concentration, but um, and then the last uh, tool that they're using is uh, as as Rolf mentioned is using these uh, biocontrols, these insects that feed specifically just on ligodium. So there's a moth, for example, that they found in Southeast Asia that will eat just on that um, on that plant, but uh, it's going to take two or three or four different kinds of insects to, that can work different aspects of, of um, when they feed on these invasive plants to be effective controls. And so our hope is that that will be the ultimate um, best chance. Right. It's going to be a combination probably because it's so extensive that you're going to have to be cutting while getting those insects in, installed. But I had a question about, oh, the island that is, you know, the trees are, are probably too far gone, so you're just going to, you know, herbicide it. Um, but then this, the invasive is going to be the first arrival to sprout again. Is there some way to encourage other things to, to grow in there or something? Well, that's, and that's the challenge. And, and so that's the challenge for when I was the refuge manager and that Rolf has now. So that the thing that, you know, when, when – um, you control that invasive plant, the, the ligodium or melaleuca. Um, it's not, you're not done. You know, you have to come back yeah. a couple of years later and retreat. So that's why it gets to be so expensive when, when the refuge staff and other management entities are doing similar type of work is that they have to, they have to figure it into, into their costs. What's going to be initial treatment? And what area needs to go back two or three years later to retreat before it gets to be, um, you know, an infestation again? So um, the hopes are that with long-term treatments, that the native vegetation will will come back and then be able to outcompete the the invasive plant. That's a real challenge because I know from you know other parks or other places. You know, you have an annual budget, and so you put in this much for that, and then, you know, along comes the storm, and so you've got to tend to fixing what the storm caused, and then you don't have the money for the follow-up application of the, uh, of, that has to follow in order for the removal of the invasive species. So this is a real tough challenge. This, is, this has been a real tough challenge for, <clears throat> for Rolf. So, you know, it's, he can only do so much based upon what he is 
provided for whatever Congress appropriates and then what is, you know, um, sent down through the Department of Interior Fish and Wildlife Service to the refuge system and then to the various refuge managers. Same way with, say, with the Park Service. So, right. upon what budget he has. To that. He won't, yeah. Yep. So, he has yeah, to decide. Yeah, I the Park Service. With, yeah. Yep. Um, and sometimes you wind up having, you know, other major issues come up. But um, I would say that probably Rolf has put a strong focus on trying to to tackle the overall climbing fern that, uh, you know, in a perfect world, if he could have, he would have probably had Melaleuca um, under yes, no, much yeah, less, exactly. you know, much I, less I exposure. Miss, I, but I you miss have to folks. spread your money. I, I misspoke because I was saying I was thinking of my managing a nonprofit, and then we have to rob Peter to pay Paul. But oh, absolutely, uh, the, I, the, I, the I, refuge yes, money is dedicated so that if you have storm damage, you have to do a fundraiser to repair the storm. You can't take it from some other area. Exactly. And so that's exactly. that's a good thing about the refuge management area there. Um, once again, we burned through a whole bunch of time, and so we need to uh, take a quick break, and then we'll be back to talk about the Lockahatchee. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. On a Cape Cod shore, 16 striped bass fish and a horseshoe crab were found dead, killed by a harmful algal bloom. The town blamed excessive lawn fertilizer for polluting the water. They restricted lawn fertilizing to once a year. The state overruled, mandating five times a year. Though the striped bass died on a Falmouth shore, fertilizer pollution is a national problem, clogging our waterways. If you believe in our rights to clean water and beaches, if you want to stop the killing of fish by excessive fertilizer, please join with us. Make a donation for responsible stewardship. Acting together, we can have clean beaches and more fish. Please visit www.donateforoceans.org. That is www.donate4oceans.org. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Take me to the river. Drop 
are listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're back, and we're talking about the Lockahatchee National Wildlife Refuge. And they are having a remarkable challenge of this invasive climbing fern uh, that's called Ligodium. And uh, how it's just, you know, we thought Phragmites is hard to beat out, but here they're on these um, many islands in the Everglades where people have to wade out in in alligator-infested waters. (laughs) cut the stems and, and paint the, the bottom so that, uh, you know, the plants stop growing. And it's a very complicated thing. I'm most appreciative of, of Mark and, and Rolf, the uh, uh, refuge managers, telling us about it. And now I want to step back to um, someone who's not working for the refuge but is a good friend of the refuge, and that's Eleanor Williams, who is uh, nobly serving as president of the Friends of the Lockahatchee Wildlife National Wildlife Refuge. Uh, hello, Eleanor. And um, I, I was really interested in how um, you got involved and what the, the Lockahatchee means to you as a, as a local resident. Well, um, I've, I've lived in Delray Beach for about 30 years, and um, whenever my parents would come down to visit us, I was always looking for places to, to take them to um, just to explore, and um, we found uh, we found the refuge, and it just became a, a particular favorite of my mother's. Uh, she really she loved to look for alligators. She loved the cypress swamp boardwalk, uh, and later on, when she um, had more trouble getting around, she had her walker, and she was still able to go around the the boardwalk with her walker and made a bit of noise with it and she would say, oh, I know you're all uh, embarrassed by me and I <laughs> felt like, no, Mom, I, I thought it was just really spunky the way she, she wanted to get out there and um, even when um, it got to where she couldn't, um, there, you, you probably find more alligators on the marsh trail than you do on the boardwalk and when she um, wasn't able to to go on the marsh trail or the boardwalk, um, we um, I would cha- I would take her to the the fishing pier down at the end of Lee Road, and and just from the car, if you drive up on the levee and look down into the canal there, uh, usually you can see an alligator who's just sitting there waiting for uh, waiting for somebody to catch a fish, and the gators would always try to catch the fish first. So, um, <laughs> so even then, uh, she got to see her alligators. So, um, so I guess that's how I um, it became a, a really special place uh, for me and and her and um, and it is to a lot of people. So I guess that's that's kind of how I got started. Uh, yeah, I was learning from the refugee manager that it's the refuge manager that it's the Lockahatchee is like a threshold between uh, Oki, Chobe, and and the um, you know the waters the north and then moving into the Everglades and that it's everything has to go right through there and how, what a remarkable uh, cypress um, you know stand that used to re- reach up and down the um, 
that's the kind of spine of the of Florida, and now it's pretty much restricted to your to the Lockahatchee. And what a wonderful variety of places that you and your mom could visit. Would you go annually, or would you be more regularly? Um, you know, once or twice a year. Um, and yeah. I, my husband and I would would go more often. But um, but yeah, it was just um, you know it was something that she really enjoyed and. Um, so eventually, I, I became a friends member, and um, I, eventually, when I um, uh, retired, I joined the board, the friends board of directors. And um, so, uh, the friends, I, I started out volunteering in the nature store that the, the friends run to raise funds for yeah. the refuge. And um, and you know, lots of friends members uh, volunteer out there. They work in the store. They work at the front desk, greeting visitors, um, weed the butterfly gardens, um, help with the school groups that come through on field trips. Um, the uh, in fact, uh, we the friends donated four thousand dollars to the Palm Beach County School District this past year to help them bring more students out on field trips because the refuge is a, a favorite spot for, for teachers and for students um, alike. They really enjoy getting out there, waiting in the Everglades, really experiencing it firsthand, and, and this is the only chance uh, a lot of them have had to do that sort of thing. Um, but the money runs out pretty early in the school year, so uh, we wanted to help, um, and some of our members felt very strongly about this, that they wanted to help bring more kids out to the refuge um, on field trips. Um, That's so the, important because, as you know, schools are dealing with difficult budgets just like the refuge is, and, uh, and often transportation for field trips is an early thing to cut out or an easier thing to cut out than other stuff. And so it's really great that the friends could raise funds to, to help the school with those expenses to bring them out to the Wakahatchee. And and, yeah. and um, you were saying that, uh, and this year you're you're helping with uh, uh, interns to work with uh, scientists, or um, that's right. This year, the the friends is is paying for um, an intern to help the biologist. Um, she's helping them with uh, wildlife surveys and water quality monitoring, um, and um, also I think she's helping with some of the school groups that come through occasionally. Um, so, yeah, we, the friends basically try to raise funds to help out the refuge, um, and our, our mission is fundraising and education and advocacy for the refuge and, and just trying to raise the, um, the visibility of the refuge in the, um, with local residents. Uh, we sponsor art and uh, photo contests each year, uh, which is one of the ways that we do that, and... Um, we just had uh, we just had the plein air painters out for Everglades Day. Everglades Day is our big once a year family festival that the friends uh, co-sponsors with the refuge and with uh, Audubon of the Everglades. And um, the plein air painters came out and um, and then when at the end of the day they displayed their paintings and and so um, the friends uh, kind of help organize that as well as an art contest that we have in the fall and. Um, and one thing, you know, I kind of got to know some of the artists because of this and went to one of their yes. exhibits, and I noticed that a lot of the paintings were from the refuge, and I kind of commented on that. And um, and the response was, well, 
yeah, it's really a favorite with uh, a lot of the artists uh, in the area because it's one of the few places where you can you can still see natural Florida the way it, the way it used to be. Mm. That that's well, that's just great. The work that you're doing for the and uh, how can uh, people who want to volunteer or go to these events uh, find out where to go and who to talk to? Um, well, one thing you can do, you can go to our website, loxahatchiefriends.com, and um, you can check the bulletin board there for events coming up, or you can um, send, a, send an email. There's a, there's a little um, um, place on our homepage where you can click mm-hmm. and say, I'd like to sign up for your monthly email newsletter, and so we can send you a um, you know, each month we can let you know what's going on at the refuge. And we also on our website have a, um, you know, if I'd like, if you'd like to volunteer, just contact us. Um, we have the number of the visitor center. So one, one thing you can do is just call the visitor, visitor center or, or just stop by, fill out a volunteer application. And, um, and we're, we always need volunteers to help work in the store, work at the desk, um, some of our volunteers lead tours. Um, we have a tram uh, tram tour that we offer to visitors, and and um, the volunteers who who run those are um, a lot of them are friends members or members of the board of directors of the friends. Um, so there, there's lots of ways you can help, and so uh, we we also have a Facebook page. Um, let's see, I think it's Facebook.com/slash. Loxahatchee Friends, or something like that, or just go to our go to our loxahatcheefriends.com website, and you can click on the Facebook icon. And we have uh, a real active community on Facebook. Um, yes, that's to, how you found me. I think is the Ocean River Institute was talking on Facebook about the Loxahatchee, and uh, you were good to uh, to to reach out to me. So I was able to reach out to you to have you on this program. And oh my gosh. We have spent almost an hour with the three of the four of us together here talking about the Lockahatchee. Um, thank you, Eleanor. Um, Ralph, do you have any uh, quick uh, takeaways that we should think about as we close the show out? Yeah, there were just one thing, a couple things I wanted to say. We also have a very active wildfire suppression and prescribed burn program. We burn about 20,000 acres intentionally a mm. year. And just a few other things, a large public use program. So we've got a lot of problems we talked about. We have a lot of really good things going on here, too. Well, that's important. It's, yeah, it's just one piece of a, a quilt of, opportunity, of wildlife management. Bravo. Uh, Mark, um, closing uh, takeaways. Just to piggyback off of what Ralph said, I mean, the refuge is just a magical place. Uh, I would hate for it to be defined by problems and by one particular issue. It's all that's left of the northern, the historic northern Everglades. Um, it has a unique habitat system unlike other portions of the Everglades. So it's a special place that needs protection and continued funding to tackle these challenges. Yeah, and that's consistent, Eleanor, with what you were saying about this is a great place to come see, see wildlife and alligators and snail kites and so forth. Eleanor, thank you. Oh, thank you. And, and Ralph and, and Mark, thank you also for um, taking the time to tell us about the National Wildlife Refuge. My pleasure. I really yep. enjoyed it. 
And that's it for this episode of Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Thanks a lot for listening, and please take care of yourself, and then let's try to take care of this planet a little better. Thanks again. Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk again then. Yeah.